Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've taken a wrong turn down Creep Street. Citizens of the Milky Way, this is Maureen Bogey. And this is Dylan Hackworth. And you are listening to the Creep Street Podcast. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Really quick before we get started, quickly just want to ask everyone if they could please to rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend about us if you're a fan, you know, spread the word of Creep Street. You know, we want to get it out. We want to get it out and about. Also, we're on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest. We're all over that. So please feel free to give us a follow. Well, you can also email us at any time at at creepstreetpodcast at gmail.com. All right, Dylan, can you tell me a little bit what is going on today? Well, today is the very first episode of Listener Suggestion Month. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. Of course. And our very first Listener Suggestion episode was suggested by Adam Archer. Adam Archer. Find him on Instagram at Adam's Lovely Pictures. He suggested The Somerton Man, a.k.a. Yes. Tomlin Should. And this is a... This this is kind of a classic. This is, you know what it is, but I, I, I hate to say, I didn't really know that much about it before we started researching this. Well, we're about to get a crash course. Okay. The source I used was called Tom and Should the Somerton Man Mystery by Carrie Greenwood. She is an Australian author, a very prolific, has written a lot of mystery novels and whatnot, and she ended up sure. sort of uh, encapsulating the story of the Somerton Man. So it all begins. November 30th, 1948. At around 7 p.m., a jeweler named John Baines Lyons was having a stroll along Somerton Beach, which is in Adelaide, Australia. John Baines Lyons was having a stroll along Somerton Beach with his wife. And it was a very hot day because it was the last day of spring there. Because, you know, there's, you know, Southern Hemisphere. You know, so yes, quite hot. And as they were walking along the shore, they noticed a man sitting with his back against the seawall. As they walked by, the sitting man extended his his right arm and then let it fall. Oh no. They assumed that he was probably just some drunk who, you know, would probably be on his way once he sobered up a bit, so they just kept on walking. At about 6.50 a.m. the next day, Lyons was taking an early morning swim, and he swam up to the shore where he met a friend, and they were chatting, and they happened to notice a group of men who, uh, they, they had a lot of morning horseback riding along the beach and stuff like that. Oh my like gosh, that. this sounds lovely. Yeah, it sounds a gl- very lovely town. Yeah, I think we have a, a lot of listeners in Adelaide, so we're sending you love. It sounds like you live in a gorgeous place. Yeah, so they saw a group of these men on, on horseback, and they were kind of gathered around where this man was sitting. And so John went to check it out, and sure enough, the man was dead. Oh, so, no. Yeah. So he went back to his home, and he called the police. The Brighton police station sent out Constable Moss to <gasps> examine the scene. Okay, yes. The Somerton man, as I will refer to him henceforth. Mm. He was sitting with his back against the seawall, his legs pointed out towards the ocean. He was very, very nicely dressed in a shirt and tie with a brown sweater, obviously a, a dress coat, slacks, and very nicely polished brown shoes. Interesting. On his lapel, 
was a half-smoked cigarette that had fallen from his mouth. There appeared to be no bullets or stab wounds or bruises, cuts, or any sign of violence. It seemed as though he had died quietly and peacefully. Very cuckoo crazy. So an ambulance takes the body to the Royal Adelaide Hospital at North Terrace. And there at 9.40 a.m., he's officially declared dead by the doctor. And the doctor suggested that this could have been maybe a heart attack. And so he sent the body to the morgue for a post-mortem. Here were the contents of the Summerton man's pockets. Ah, <gasps> okay. He had a railway ticket to Henley Beach, a bus ticket to North Lenig, an American metal comb, a packet of juicy fruit chewing gum, a packet of Army Club cigarettes with seven Canista cigarettes inside of it, a handkerchief, and a packet of Brian and May matches. But on him, there was no wallet, no forms of ID, no money, no passport. And the author notes that while the Summerton man was nicely dressed, his apparel was kind of out of place for the climate. Right. It was very hot, and he had on full suit, brown sweater pullover, double-breasted jacket, like all the that whole, right. the whole thing. Yeah, that sounds wild. When they examined the clothes, all the tags and brand labels had been removed. What? And wadded up in his fop pocket was a piece of paper torn from a book that read the words, Tamam should. The physician performing the autopsy was Dr. J.M. Dwyer. He had a hunch that the Somerton man maybe died from poisoning of some kind. He took samples from his liver, muscles, blood, urine, stomach, all that stuff for analysis. Also photographed uh, the body and collected fingerprints. So, while waiting to hear back about the forensic results, the police were struggling to even find out who this guy was. Right. The fingerprints they had taken matched none that were on record there in Australia. So, finding nothing but dead ends, the police went to the press, which the book makes a point of saying police don't really look forward to doing because when you do that tons of right. tips come in and they have to follow up on every single tip and, and i'm sure most of them are just you know like right most wild them, yeah so they ended up looking into 251 possibilities all of it came up short in fact they ended up combing over every single missing persons report in the entire continent of australia wow find nothing so identifying the body after that became pretty much impossible See, while waiting for forensic results and turning up nothing by the police, time was passing and the body was decomposing. So they had it embalmed, which, while preserving the body, kind of makes it virtually unrecognizable. It would be very possible then for even a close family member to positively identify the body. So they had kind of hit a dead end. Right. On January 14th, they had a bit of a break in the case when a police appeal was made for an unclaimed baggage that was found in a locker at Adelaide's Central Railway Station. The baggage had been checked in at 11 a.m. on November 30th, 1948, the same day as the apparent death of the Somerton man. Okay. The suitcase was classy and clean, brown leather, and it had all the labels removed. <gasps> Weird. And the book even says that back on that day, airport tags were not like tie-ons like they are now. Right. They were stuck on adhesively, and it was very, very difficult to remove them. So clearly, Somerton Man really did not want people to know he had been there. Because he went through the the process of, like, getting this shit off his... Like, really getting the, the tags off, yeah. Right. Here is the contents of his suitcase. A red checked dressing gown with red felt slippers, size 7. Okay, cute. Four pairs of underpants, cute. pajamas. Yeah. Four pairs of socks, shaving kit razors, strap shaving brush, light brown trousers with sand in the cuffs, a cut down table knife, a stencil and scissors, a sewing kit with orange barber's waxed thread. Oh. Two ties, three pencils, a pair of scissors, six handkerchiefs, six pence in coins, a button, a tin of Kiwi brand brown shoe polish, one scarf, one cigarette lighter, eight large envelopes, one small envelope, but no letters. What? One piece of light cord, 
one pair of shorts with no name tag or label, one yellow coat shirt, two airmail stickers, one eraser, one front and one back collar stud, a toothbrush, and toothpaste. That's so weird because most of those things are, you're just like, okay, this is a suitcase. But there are a few things that are very weird. Yes, and we will get to that. So what confirmed that this was indeed the suitcase of the Somerton Man was the orange barber thread. It was not available in Australia, and a pocket on the Somerton Man's jacket had been repaired using this same thread. Oh, wow. So this suitcase, like, is for sure his. Yes. Add to that, it was waxed thread, which is not really used for clothing repair. Also, all the clothes fit his size, as well as the slippers would fit his feet. There were laundry marks, which were left by dry cleaners back then to identify garments in case tags got lost. The numbers were 1171 by 1, 4393 by 7, 3053 by 7, but a thorough search indicated that no dry cleaners had used those combinations of numbers. Oh my god, wow. The only name that was found was on a laundry bag by the name of T. Keen. Nobody named by the name of T. Keen was reported missing. They believe he had gotten this bag secondhand, but did not bother removing the name because if he wasn't T. Keen, then all that would do is just kind of throw the scent off more. Exactly. His body, you know. So an examiner notes that the feather stitching on the man's suit was also only found in the American clothing industry. Wow, this is some great this investigation that they exactly. did. Exactly. It's, it's like a bunch of pieces from different puzzles that don't fit together. Right, yeah, whoa. It was a suit tailor-made, and on top of that, the tags removed, which is weird because, especially back in that day, if you're going to spend a lot of dough oh, on gotta, fine threads, you want people to see... Get that label on there. You want that label, and also you would, a lot of times you would write your, you would want something to say, hey, this is, got, this is mine. Yeah. So, let's talk about the actual body of the Somerton. Okay, let's talk about his body. He was five foot eleven with grayish hazel eyes, reddish blonde hair that was graying on the temples. His body was healthy and muscular. Fingernails and toenails were all well manicured. Oh, great. Uncircumcised. He had tanned legs. Mm. Strangely pointed shoes, indicating he cared more about looking good than comfort. Oh, These yeah. shoes, it would have, you know, probably wouldn't have felt good, but damn, did they look good. Oh my God, you got to do the pointed toe. It elongates the body. It draws the, the line down. Okay, that's a little fashion tip for you guys. Oh yeah. A rocking set of calf muscles. Oh yes. Yeah, everything, all the videos that I have watched on this and d- the reading I've done, they are just off and popping about these calf about these muscles. these calves, baby. Muscles, yeah. I love these calves. Who you doesn't gotta give it up for calves. Yeah, give it up, yeah. Ooh, if you put in the work, show them off, baby. Oh my gosh, his calves are like immortal. His estimated age is about 55. Okay. There were only three small scars on the body, no tattoos, which the author says is very significant, especially if this man was a working class man, which things are building up to say maybe he wasn't, because working class men, I guess in those days, specifically had a lot of tats. Right, it was tat time. He also had no piercings and his hands were soft, meaning he probably wasn't working yes. on the docks. So okay, he probably yes, wasn't, yes, yes. you know. Yeah, now, yeah. there were these three small scars, as I said, on the inside of his left wrist. A curved one-inch scar inside the left elbow and a round mark on his upper left arm. And the author says most likely from a boil, probably. Gross. The author believes these scars indicate that he was a seaman, however. Despite the evidence to the contrary, and this is a quote from the book, someone who wears oil skin standing in salt sea spray gets the sleeve of his non-dominant hand wet and the sleeve then scrapes across his inside wrist. They call these gurry sores. It also indicates that the man was probably right-handed and he was also missing most of his back teeth and the remainders of him clearly indicated he was a smoker you know uh-huh. stain you know smoke stained teeth 
The doctors think he died at around 2 a.m., about eight hours before the examination. Right. So in the summary, the coroner is suggesting that there was some poison present in the body, but that he observed no poisonous matter. In fact, the food in his belly had been there for three to four hours before his death. A normal irritant poison would have forced him to vomit. Oh, So in the end, the cause of death was ruled as heart failure, possibly by the poison. Whether this was a murder or a suicide or just an accident, no one knows. There's a chapter in this book where they go into all different kinds of poisons. That could be its own episode. It could really be its own episode. Maybe we'll do uh, that. Basically, she goes through all the different kinds of poisons and how likely, unlikely it would be one of them. And even the most likely was not likely that he was that he was poisoned. Right. Okay. Like maybe it was an act. They think it was maybe he had somehow gotten that in its system before, but right. That's not what killed him. We will come back to that though because <gasps> it's very fascinating how they think he might have gotten it. In oh, system. oh my god, I'm so freaking excited. So by now the FBI in Scotland Yard had gotten back to them and they also had no records of the man's fingerprints. So that means no go in the states. No go in the UK, you know. Where is this Right, guy nothing from? in Australia, right. So guessing from the limited facts they had, the author thinks that the man arrived around noon, maybe missed his train after cleaning up, bought his bus ticket, and then was fed. So let me talk to you real quick before we get into this book. But that little piece of paper, remember the little scrap of paper that read the words Tomlin should? Right. Well, this was from a book, a very popular book that was an English translation of medieval Persian poetry that became very popular in the English-speaking world in the 20th century, often bought as a gift sometimes for significant others and whatnot. It was a very very popular book. And I just want to preface that because this book, kind of a cornerstone of this case. Right. Because that's really like the only lead that they kind of were able to follow was that like, okay, he had this little piece of paper from a book. And why they refer to him sometimes as Tamam should. And I think I'm saying that right. Tamam should is it's because that was the words that were written on the book of, of the PC tour out of a book. So on July 22nd, a one Ronald Francis remembered that his copy of the Rubia was in the glove box of his Holman Minx. He asked his brother-in-law about it, who had been borrowing his car at the time, and he confirmed that the book was in the car when he found it, but it was on the floor of the car. So when he saw it, he just picked it up, popped it back in the glove box. This car was parked on Mosley Street overlooking Somerton Beach, right over the spot where the man was found. Oh, weird. So the next day, Francis took the book to the police and it was a match. The <gasps> page had been torn from his book. Even crazier, the book piece that he he had that, you know, contained the words Tom and should, he had written on it a code and a phone number. The, the owner of the book? So no, no, no. The man, who, <gasps> the Somerton man, oh, when Somerton. he ripped out, he then wrote something. Oh, okay, yeah. So you had the words Tom and should, which was from the book, but right. then he wrote on it a certain kind of code and a phone number. Whoa. So something that was curious about this specific version of the Rubiat was that it was an original edition printed in 1859. I mean, there were more editions than these three, but the uh, three of the most popular editions at the time were published in 19, or 1859, the original, 1868, and 1872, respectively. All three editions of this book are different enough that it would have affected the decryption of the code written on the piece of paper, meaning he must have specifically wanted an original 
additional addition. Oh, which then wow. makes me wonder how was it just happened to be in a car he walked by, right. opened a glove box, and knew that it, there was going to be an 1859 edition. Yeah, what the hell? That's... Of the ruby. How and would it you matter that, that he wrote it on that piece of paper? It, it would be like me just walking down a street in Chicago, picking a car, and saying, "Hey, there's there's a copy of Harry Potter in there." I bet. Oh, uh, I wish. The chance right. of that, yeah, is just absurd. The book also points out that something else is weird about this little piece of paper. Oh no! It was the only thing in the Somerton man's possession that was not utilitarian, meaning okay. everything he had on him was some kind of a tool for an end, whether right. it be the clothes, the thread, the scissors, all that stuff. This little scrap of paper was the only thing on him in this suitcase that betrayed who the Somerton man might be was this little scrap of paper. So here was the code. So the code starts with a W, but possibly an M, R G O. A-B-A-B-D. Second line, which was crossed out and then rewritten. They had started to write M-L-I-A-O-I and then scratched it out. The third line is W-T-B-I-M-P-A-N-E-T-P. And then the fourth line is M-L-I-A-B-O with a, and the O has a X above it in the corner. Okay. Which I think is a, a symbol used in certain coding. I, you know, I'm not up on my coding, so I apologize. But it's M-L-I-A-B-O with the X over it, A-I-A-I-Q-C. And finally, final line, which was struck and rewritten, it was I-T-T-M-T-S-A-M-S-T-G-A-B. Now, no one obviously has been able to decipher what that X over the O means. Now, that phone number. The number was unlisted. And it belonged to a nurse named Teresa Powell. She lived right there on Mosley Street above Summerton Beach. She was questioned by authorities and said she was not home on November 30th, but a neighbor had mentioned that a strange man called at the house. And when she was shown the body cast of the Summerton man, her reaction was described as very taken aback, almost to the point of fainting. Really? Which is weird because one, she was she would have already known in advance she was about to see a dead body. It well, wasn't like it was a shock. And well, two, she's a nurse. Right. She would have been accustomed to death. Well, also, didn't he, she not even see the dead body? She just saw the, like, bust that they made that right. looked just, that was like a mold of him, basically. Exactly. And she recoiled almost to the point of faint. She said she had once had a copy of the book while working at the Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney, Australia. But in 1945, she had given the book to a soldier named Alfred Boxall. A quick look up, and they were able to find that Boxall was not the Somerton man. In fact, he was still alive and very well. On top of that, Teresa said she did not recognize the body cast. Despite her reaction, she did not recognize the body cast. In fact, Boxall was shown the body cast, and he also didn't know who the Somerton man was. Didn't recognize him. He still even had his copy of the book Teresa had given him, the 1924 Sydney edition, and nothing had been torn out of it. In fact, in the book's front cover was written a little note, which was probably a love note from Teresa to Alfred Boxall. Here we go. Teresa asked that the police not use her real name in the report because she was just recently married. Wasn't so much she was afraid it would hurt her marriage. I don't think she was just she didn't want people to you know trying to trying to you know put people in on you know. And this is a different era. I'm sure you know she's got to look out for her for herself and whatnot. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. So, in the original report, she was given the name Justine, spelled J-E-S-T-Y-N, which was the name in which she signed Boxall's book. Oh, So, okay. only her and Boxall would know so that. So, they were like, so, okay, yeah. Well, Boxall said he also bought a copy for his wife in June 1945, which also indicates Boxall was married at the time he was fooling around with yeah. Teresa. 
there it is. Which is not relevant to the story, but it was just a little note the author made sure to put in oh, yeah. there. Just to get, make you understand why my some of these people might be a little edgy to... They're like, hey, I don't know, you know. Right. Not that they had anything to do with this man's death, but hey, they don't want to fuck up their personal lives. Boxall said he still had the original copy with the inscription that was given to him, but the edition that Boxall's wife showed the police didn't have an inscription. It was a fresh copy. In a 1978 interview, Boxall said that Justine was just one of a group of nurses that him and his pals, his soldier buddies, fooled around with while they were docked up. Oh yeah, hell yeah. Well, it was later found out at the time of being interviewed by the police, Teresa actually wasn't yet married. (gasps) Teresa. After nursing at the Royal North Shore, she moved back to her mother's house at Melbourne. While there, she had a baby (gasps) and moved to Adelaide. She would later, in 1950, take the last name of the man who would be her husband, who had the last name of Prestige Johnson. Oh my God, a, a wonderful name. Once his divorce went through in 1950. So, they don't go into it, but I'm assuming they're implying she was not married yet, but she was had a child out of wedlock, and she did marry the man who, we can assume, maybe got her pregnant. Right, right, right. So you can understand, especially late different 40s. Or the, time, different time. Know. The lady's probably scared. She doesn't want... She's like, I'm pregnant. She's like, I'm pre- she's like, well, of course I'm married, even though at the time she wasn't, but she did go on to marry the man, we assume. was yeah. the, So, Feltus, Gerald Feltus, okay. I think that was his name, maintains the theory that Teresa did, in fact, know the Somerton man, but her and her family were not involved with the actual death of the Somerton man. Okay. So perhaps the Somerton man he thought was maybe a lover to Teresa that her family didn't know about, and therefore they left her alone. It was obvious Teresa had no role in his death. Yeah. So therefore, just let let her private life be private. No use stirring up, kicking a hornet's nest. Mm-hmm. So the author was talking about how the coroner and the police at the time they were going back and forth with different theories. And there's a whole chapter where they talk about the different theories. Some are more compelling than others. Right. I'm saving you know for this for the purpose of this I'm saving the more the big ones. Oh, the, or the to. more fun ones. At the end of the night, the coroner mentioned an excellent, excellent point. Up until this point, we have been discussing poisons under the assumption that the man seen by the jeweler, Lyons, that him and his wife saw, we are operating under the assumption that that man sitting at the seawall from a long distance who raised his right arm and then let it fall, we're operating under the assumption that that was the same man as the summer. Right, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. Maybe yeah. that first guy was a drunk who just had a little bit too much to drink, was just sober enough. Just and then eventually, a sit down. Maybe he just went on his way after he had walked up. There's nothing to prove because they did not get close enough. Right, we don't, they can't know. That's an interesting caveat. Maybe we're looking at this thing all wrong. Right, right, right. So the arguments, though, that the book makes against this theory, which I don't think fully dispel this theory, the book makes the argument that the beach was a very busy beach, even in early morning. If there, let's say, if there had been like a couple of guys that killed him trying to get rid of a body, it would have been obvious that right, they would have seen, you know, people shuffling a dead body down the stairs. It was a very public beach. Right, right. Now, I don't think that dispels the theory because you're then operating under the assumption that he was killed. Mm -hmm. Also, that someone would then want to take the body down there. Not necessarily the case. So, I'm still stuck on that. Was that original guy the one in the same. Like, it seems like it, but it, we really don't have any way of knowing for sure. An elephant in the room <gasps> that has not yet been mentioned is the crippled children's home, also known as Somerton House, which I will call it from henceforth. Somerton House was built in 1939 as a place to treat children with polio, but they also took on kids with other kinds of disabilities, both physical and mental. Now, being that this was a children's hospital, they would have probably gone to bed early. Yeah. Likewise, there would be a kitchen and an infirmary, which would have served as the source 
source of the Somerton man's last meal and the glucosides that were in his system. Likewise, up until this point, we have been operating under the assumption that the Somerton man came in from the train out of Melbourne. Keep in mind the era we're talking about. The war is over, the atom's already been split, and the Cold War has now begun. The Red Scare is a very real thing at this time. And Australia, just simply because of its vast terrain and, and, and very, you know, it was a very popular place to test rockets, kind of like right. the American Southwest in New Mexico and stuff like yeah. Nevada, where we test our shit. Kind of a similar thing. And the British uh, were there testing bombs, testing rockets and whatnot. It would make sense that if there were any Soviet spies sneaking around, Uh-oh. they would probably be in Adelaide, which was so many kilometers away from these military bases. Okay. Well, at that time, you only came in and out by rail from one of two directions. You either came in from the east or went east going to or from Melbourne, or you were headed west or coming from the west where you would find Port Augusta, the nearest stop to the Maralinga and Woomera military bases. The port for both bases was there at Port Augusta. Is it possible Summerton Man had sensitive information for which he was killed? Was he a spy? There's a theory that perhaps he was interrogated, but not violently, as we know, no nothing on his body to indicate that, was given sodium pentothal, which is otherwise known as truth serum. Perhaps he was given an overdose. The questioners removed all his labels and left him on the beach to die. But the book says this is unlikely, however, because the, the labels on the briefcase were removed as well. That's true. Somerton Man was eventually buried by Elephant and Castle Pub in East Terrace, Adelaide. There at the pub, they held a donation at the pub because they wanted Somerton Man to have some kind of a decent burial. They didn't want him to just be... That's so nice. You know, so that was really nice. On June 14th, 1949, the Somerton Man was officially buried. And his headstone to this day reads, Here lies the unknown man who was found at Somerton Beach, 1st of December, 1948. Every year on December 1st, a woman was seen placing a red rose on the (gasps) Somerton Man's grave. But when interviewed, there was no connection between her and the Somerton Likewise, and this is something interesting we'll come back to, likewise, pebbles had been piled on the grave, which is common practice in decorating Jewish graves. Yeah. But given that the Somerton man was uncircumcised, it seems unlikely that he was Jewish. Now, it wasn't uncommon that Jewish children during World War II in Europe were sent away to Catholic and Christian schools in World War II and therefore were not circumcised. But given the Somerton man's age, he would have been too old for that. Yeah, yeah, you gotta, yeah, that happens real early on. And we'll come back to that theory because there's very fascinating stuff behind that theory. The coroner finally closed the case on March 14th, 1958. Since then, all evidence other than Summerton Man's socks have been discarded. Because that's the thing, you know, police stations, when they, after so many deaths, After a while, they're like, we gotta, you know. Gotta make room. Well, a New Zealand prisoner one day named E.B. Collins said he knew the Summerton Man. Oh. He was reportedly being paid big money for his story exclusive, but a story never came out of it, so uh. who knows. Weird coincidences also surround the Summerton Man case. In June 1949, a two-year-old named Clive Magnuson was found dead in a sack <gasps> on a large bay about 20 kilometers down the coast from Somerton Beach. Lying next to the child was his father, Keith Magnus, who was nearly dead from exposure. They had been missing for four days. Oh my God. The child died of unknown causes, and the father could not remember what happened. Even weirder, they were discovered on the beach by a man who said he was led there by a dream. 
What? Mrs. Magnuson said the family had been terrorized by a man in a khaki handkerchief that covered his face. Yes. Who warned them, keep away from the police or else. Keith, the father, happened to be one of the people who claimed to have known Somerton Man. He believed him to be a man named Carl Thompson, who he met in Renmark in 1939. So was this an act to shut him up? Right. In 2009, so years, years later, Professor Abbott from the University of Adelaide discovered upon examining the Somerton Man's cigarettes, remember that packet of Army Club cigarettes, the cigarettes inside, as we said, were Canista cigarettes, which is a much posher brand. Oh, okay. A little more high scale. Okay, we're having fun here. You know, top shelf cigarettes, baby. Okay, yes, treat yourself. So one can understand why one would take cheaper cigarettes and put them in a nicer pack to give off the alert. Come on. But why the opposite? Right. Why did he have a pack of cheap cigarettes, but then put the nice one, you know, without flaunting that? Why would you want to flaunt? Yeah. You know? That is weird. Yeah. Maybe he's just like a really chill guy. Is it possible? That the Somerton man had bought army club cigarettes, but then ran out. Someone could have given him cigarettes, which he then kept in that empty packet. This also leads to the possibility that Somerton man was poisoned via cigarettes. Because as we know, the cigarette was on dangling, it it was was on his lapel. It didn't even burn his his lips or like the flame of the, so he died with a cigarette in his mouth. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So maybe he's dying, not even realize he's being poisoned. He's sitting there and he's like, Jesus, I'm drowsy. And he's just tugging on his cigarette. I love smoking a cigarette so much. So Professor Abbott examined the Somerton man's teeth to discover he had, I'm going to hope, I know I'm going to say this wrong, but hypersonesia, I'm sure I said that wrong, of the lateral incisors, which only about 2% of the population actually have. He also had very uniquely shaped ears, small <gasps> lobes with kind of higher top. They have a distinct look. He just like has like boyhood charm like out the wazoo. Right. And he's I mean, just like trying to from, his best. From all descriptions of this man, oh he sounds pretty damn good looking. I mean, 5'11", oh, yeah. so good, you know, modest height. Yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah. No, you know, nicely dressed. I mean, his calves are like exquisite. So the son of Teresa, who we talked about earlier, the nurse, her son also has hypersonita <gasps> in his jaw and similar ears. Is it possible Somerton Man was the father of her child? I mean... Let's remember it was her phone number that was written on that piece of paper. <gasps> it is also possible that Somerton Man is an expatriate of some kind. Right, right, right. After the war, it was common many Europeans moved to places like Australia as a way to sort of just put distance between themselves and those, you know, the the horrors of war. Somerton Man's fingerprints outside of Australia were only compared to databases in the U.S. and British Commonwealth. It's very possible Somerton Man was not from those places. Oh, yeah, no, no. And of course, there's a theory that the Somerton Man was a time traveler. According to this theory. Okay, he's a time-traveling elf. I'm just loving everything about this. According to this theory, he was a great-great-grandson to Teresa Powell. (gasps) He was waiting on the beach to be picked up by his mothership and perhaps died of an allergic reaction to something or by a death ray. (gasps) His clothing would indicate he was from or going to a colder climate. Now, this is, I think, the author. She's saying this a little bit tongue-in-cheek. For The word that gives that away, mothership. First of all, there's nothing that that says time travel has anything to do with a mothership. I think, here, I think she's just having fun, which is also okay. I mean, we're having a blast, you know. But let's remember, this was 1948, which was when the Nation of Israel was formed. Oh, here we go. It was very common that pro-Israel Gentiles would smuggle arms to Israel to help them defend themselves. So, if Somerton Man was a Gentile, 
smuggling arms to Israel, it would explain oh. why local Jews might have put the pebbles on his grave oh. as a commemorative, as a thing, as like a, what a to commemorate great. what he did. Oh, yes. Okay, yes. That I thought was interesting. And also, Ireland became dependent in 1948. Mm-hmm. So it's possible maybe he was running arms to Ireland. To Ireland. Okay, here Two we go. Two very possible things. And then yes. uh, the author then takes a chapter where she writes, she essentially writes the story of the Somerton Man, complete with dialogue. What right. she thinks happened. She had, she had very cool ideas about you know perhaps he you know had worked on ships and found himself there and was running and perhaps he had been poisoned or whatnot. But the reason why he was smiling was he knew his cachet of arms had gotten off the dock and to Israel. Aww. Very fascinating stuff. We we've talked about it a couple times and I really just want to unpack it. Let's talk Please. about these calves for Joshua. the love of God. So I've also heard some theories that maybe he was a dancer yes. of some kind. Uh, because I, you doing you know, if you're a ballet dancer, you know your calves are the main one. You know absolutely. what I mean? Like they get so toned and big and like Yeah. And it would also explain why he's probably used to wearing uncomfortable shoes. Yeah. And also his hands were soft. Hands were soft. But so he, he pr- was like very, he was in great shape though, you know? Exactly. So it's like he wasn't doing, he was like, you know, right. he was clearly an active man. Right. So he's right. in great shape. And they mention other things that he, may, whether he was a, a, a cyclist or a, you know, a runner or just various things, mountain climber, you know, things that right. would give, but you'd think a lot of those would lend themselves to some sort of callousness on the hands. Yeah. So yeah, that's a very possible thing. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to wrap it up for the Somerton Man. Big thank you to Adam Archer for suggesting it. Thank uh, it you, was Adam. A blast to research. And ladies and gentlemen, it's Listener Suggestion Month all month long. Oh my gosh. We're just getting started, ladies and gentlemen. Once again, my name is Dylan Hackworth. I'm Maureen Bogey. And this is Creep Street. Citizens of the Milky Way. Good night and goodbye. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.